are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Here we go. We're live, I'm supposing, right now. Thank you, everybody. My name is David Guzik. So pleased that you could join me today. Uh, it's a Thursday afternoon, or at least it's right at noon here on the West Coast of the United States. And wherever you are all over the world, very, very pleased that you could join us for our Thursday afternoon, or maybe it's evening for you, question and answer time. What we do is we come together here on Thursdays, and uh, I start out with a lead question. Lead question can come in from any kind of, uh, you know, email, leftover question from a previous week, social media, whatever it would be. Uh, the lead questions come into us that way, and then we go on and we go to your questions in the live chat. You stand a better chance of getting your question addressed if you submit it right away. Uh, because eventually, somewhere through the program, we cut off the number of questions. We, we go for about an hour here on Thursday afternoons. And I was thinking of going longer today. I plan on going longer some Thursday, maybe do an hour and a half. Today will not be the day because I've got some appointments afterwards that I have to make. I'll get to our lead question for a mo in a moment. But just first, I want to say uh, happy birthday to my daughter, Ansafi. Today's her birthday. Secondly, I want to welcome our TWR360 audience. That's Trans World Radio 360. They have an outstanding ministry globally. Decades ago, beginning with shortwave radio, which they continue to do. But now they have an increasing online presence through TWR360. I also want to tell you, if perhaps you were unaware that I have a lot of completely free Bible resources. And uh, some people find my Bible resources helpful. Look, if you don't, I don't take it personally. Not going to work for everybody. But there's more than a few people who find my Bible resources helpful. I have a verse-by-verse -verse commentary throughout the entire Bible that is available absolutely free online. You can go to EnduringWord.com and look it up. And let me tell you something, how free that commentary is. We don't even have paid ads on the website. We just don't. We want the user experience for everybody to be as best as possible. And I'm not saying that we will never at some time in the future have paid ads. Maybe we will. But for a long time and through millions of visitors, we haven't had paid ads just because we want to keep a great user experience. All right, with that, let me get into the lead question for today. And the lead question comes from Diana, who asks this question. Here we go. Are there other ways to use binding and loosing than solving disputes, as in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18? I know someone who is word of faith, and she is daily binding the devil over every negative circumstance. Okay, Diana, very pleased to answer this question, and it's going to take a little while to get into it. I, I would say this, Diana, your friend is misguided or perhaps mistaught, um, although I think that maybe her instinct and what she's asking God to do has a legitimate practice and use, I just think maybe the terminology that she's been taught and maybe some of the thinking behind that terminology is a bit off the mark. So I, I welcome this opportunity, Diana, to explain this 
in greater depth. Let, let me just begin by saying, we as believers don't have some broad authority to bind the devil as we please. Listen, I've heard people pray the prayers. I'll give you an example. Lord, we just bind the devil over California right now. Now, again, it would be a wonderful thing if somebody through their prayer could command the devil to cease all of his activity within the state of California. I don't know what would happen once you'd go over the state line in uh, Oregon or Nevada or Arizona or whatever. Trouble, I suppose. But friends, I've heard people pray those prayers. And may I say, to, to my observation, I think to the fair observation of anybody looking on, the devil doesn't really seem to be bound in that sense. He's still at work. He's still doing his thing. And if that were the case, why don't 10 believers get together or 100 believers or 1,000 believers and pray together in faith, Lord, we bind Satan's activity over all the earth right now. And it'd be great. Then Satan can't do anything more. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. Now, let me sort of explain much more of the answer. Diana, you mentioned the Matthew 18 passage. So let me bring this up. Matthew chapter 18. I need to get to verse 18, but I got to begin by reading verses 15, 16, and 17, because the context is very important here. So here we go. Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Okay, in other words, let him be excluded from the congregation. For, for someone to, for a congregation of believers to regard somebody as a heathen and a tax collector would say, you, you are recognized as not being a member of this congregation. Maybe, and again, there's different opinions on this, but maybe they could be received as a visitor, but not as a member. This is a church that isn't pretending that everything's okay. Somebody is in hardened sin. They won't listen to correction. They won't change their ways. And Jesus said, the church needs to take the strong. And I would say it's an extreme. I don't mean extremely bad. I just mean it's an extreme step of placing that person outside the congregation and saying, we don't recognize you as a believer any longer. We recognize you as someone who's an unbeliever and in sin, you need to repent, okay? So remember that from verses uh, 15, 16, and 17. Now, Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus said right after that, assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So when Jesus said those words in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, it very much flows from the context of what he had just described. If the process that Jesus described in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, 16, and 17 is done, is done humbly, is done according to the word of God, then this is quite binding in the eyes of God. 
God says, I will recognize it. I will recognize what that congregation does. And might I say, in the modern context, it's binding in the eyes of God, even if those unrepentant ones just go to another church or go their own way and pretend it never happened. But this is what I want you to see. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18 is limited in its scope. It's dealing with a sinning brother among the community of believers. This is not a broad, whatever you bind is bound kind of authority. It's a promise that God will back up, so to speak, church leaders and his people in general when they practice church discipline according to his word. But friends, when you read Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, in context, it's not some general authority for believers to bind Satan. Now, let me talk to you about another important passage relevant to this biblical idea of binding and loosing. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 16 now, uh, verses 17, 18, and 19. Here we go. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Now, again, notice those words. Jesus gave great authority to Peter, and I would say here, not only to Peter, but to all the 12 disciples who would go later on to become the 12 apostles. Now, I must say that this idea of Peter holding the keys of the kingdom of heaven has captured the imagination and has captured the theology of many Christians throughout the centuries. In artistic representation, if you go, I think of it mainly in the cathedrals of Europe because that's where I've visited more than anything. When you go to the cathedrals of Europe and look at the stained glass or, or look at the, the statues that are carved in stone, either outside the church or inside the church, if you see somebody holding a couple of keys, that's Peter. In artistic representation, Peter is almost always shown in traditional Christian art with keys. But what does it mean that Peter has these keys? keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people think that this means that Peter has the authority to admit people to heaven or to keep people out of heaven. Friends, this is the basis for this popular image of Peter standing at the pearly gates of heaven. I don't think it's a biblical idea that that's where these people get it. Some people think that this also means that Peter was the first pope and that his supposed successors have the keys that were first given to Peter. The, the idea is that Peter was given these keys, and then through the centuries, Peter passed on the keys to each successive bishop of Rome, each successive pope. In fact, the papal insignia of the Roman Catholic Church is made up of two prominent keys that are crossed together. Now, friends, I don't have any problem, and I know this is a bit of a side, but I want to talk about it. I have no problem with saying and seeing that Peter had a special place among all the disciples, and that Peter had, in fact, some special privileges. 
Peter is always listed first when there's a list of the disciples. I think there's some significance to that. Every time there's a list of the disciples, Peter is listed first. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, when he uh, preached to the Jewish crowd, I believe it was at the Temple Mount on Pentecost, Peter opened the doors of the kingdom to the Jewish people. Then later on in Acts chapter 10, when he spoke to the household of Cornelius, he opened the doors of the kingdom to the Gentiles. I have no problem saying that Peter was a man of prominence. Peter was the leading disciple. Peter opened the doors of the kingdom to the Jews and to the uh, Gentiles. All of that seems clear to me from the gospel and Acts. Yet, in my estimation, I'm freely acknowledge there's people who disagree with this, but I would say that there is no biblical argument whatsoever that Peter's privilege or authority was passed on. To put it one way, it's possible to say that Jesus gave Peter the keys, but Jesus didn't give Peter the authority to pass them on to further generations. And they would, I would say that there is not a whisper in the scriptures that Peter's authority was to be passed on. Friends, the idea that apostolic authority comes from Jesus, who gave it to Peter, who set his hands on approved and ordained men, who in turn set their hands on the heads of approved and ordained men, and so on and so on throughout the generations on today. This idea of apostolic succession, friends, I think that it's a wrong idea. I'll go so far. I think it's nonsense. True apostolic succession stays faithful to the word of God. These ceremonial ideas of apostolic succession, I think that they are exactly what Charles Spurgeon said they were. To use a strong line from Spurgeon, he called it the laying of empty hands on empty heads. Where real apostolic authority comes from, I'll I'll talk about in just a moment. But notice this in verse 19. I'm getting back to the main point. Sorry for that digression. But in verse 19, uh, Jesus said this to Peter and, and to the other disciples as well. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, the power for binding and loosing was something that the Jewish rabbis of that day used. They bound or loosed an individual in the application of a particular point of the Jewish law. Jesus promised that Peter and the other apostles would be able to set the boundaries authoritatively for the new covenant community. This was the authority given to the apostles and prophets to build a foundation. Don't forget what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And friends, that foundation of the apostles and prophets is given to us forever in the word of God. Don't ever forget that. Now, therefore, what did Jesus mean when he said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Jesus meant simply that God gave both the permission and the authority 
to the first generation apostles to make the rules for the early church, just as was fulfilled or was being fulfilled described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. You see, again, I want to remind you, binding and loosing were administrative terms in daily Jewish life. Whenever a Jew came up against the law of Moses, that Jewish person was either bound or loosed regarding that law. So, to loose was to permit them to do it. To bind was to prohibit it. To loose was to be free from the law in that situation. To bind was to put that person under the law. Now, in daily Jewish life, this could be rather complicated. Let me give you an example from ancient rabbinical writings uh, cited by a teacher I had early in my Christian life named Mike Russ. And Mike, I doubt you'd ever listen to this, but thank you for this. He cited this example, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, okay, what happens if a dog dies in your house? Is your house clean or unclean? Does it need to be ceremonially cleansed? Should you regard it as clean or unclean? The rabbi said, well, no, that's easy. If the dog dies in your house, it's unclean. You got to cleanse your house. Well, secondly, if your dog dies outside of your house, is your house clean or unclean? The rabbi said, it's clean. You're loosed concerning that law. You're bound according to the law of purification if the dog dies in your house. You're loosed according to the law of purification if the dog dies outside of your house. Well, what if the dog dies on your doorstep? Is your house clean or unclean? And according to Mike Russ, ancient rabbinical writings took this issue head on and they decided that if the dog died with his nose pointing into the house, then the house was unclean. If the dog died with his nose pointing away from the house, then the house was clean. So do you see how people would go to the rabbi when something happened? Rabbi, am I bound or am I loosed concerning this? Now, Jesus is saying, you guys aren't going to go to the rabbis anymore. You're going to go to the apostles. Jesus performed this binding and loosing work for his own disciples without using the same words. For example, when Jesus said that the apostles were allowed to take the grains of wheat in the field, that's in Matthew chapter 12, he was saying, that they are loosed concerning this. And friends, we don't have authoritatively the authority to bind and loose for others, but we are bound and loosed according to God's word and according to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. Now, what about this idea of binding Satan? Friends, Jesus spoke clearly of his power to bind Satan. There's no doubt about this. Take a look at this in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. You'll also find this verse in Matthew chapter 12 or Luke chapter 11, or at least their rendering of it. Mark says this, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. You see, Jesus said that in regard to the... uh, charge that he was in league with the devil. And Jesus said, I'm not under Satan. Instead, I'm proving that I'm stronger than Satan is. And in that little parable, the parable of the strong man, Jesus is the strong man who guards what belongs to him. And Jesus's ministry was found in defeating the strong man, both in the case of casting the demon out of the man who was mute 
and in the broader sense. Jesus promised to plunder the house of Satan. Friends, you could say that Jesus looks at every life delivered from Satan's dominion and says, I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan one life at a time. Friends, isn't it good news? There is nothing in our life that must stay under Satan's domination. No, the one who binds the strong man, the one who will plunder Satan's house is our risen Lord. So what does that mean for us? Well, friends, you're not Jesus. You can't bind the strong man in the same way that Jesus can and did. Now, I want to be very clear. Believers do have some measure of authority in spiritual warfare. I think that the tendency today is for believers to uh, think less of their authority than they should. Yes, there, there's, there's more than a few believers out there who are exaggerating the authority that believers have, but, but it's our tendency mostly, I believe, to, to underestimate it. But please remember, All of the authority that the believer has is one in Jesus Christ. It's received in him. It's not direct authority, but it's indirect authority. And there's no indication that believers have the authority, have the power, have the ability to bind Satan as they might please. I want you to consider this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I didn't put it up on the verses, but you can just listen to it carefully. Peter warns believers to be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In this age, Satan walks about. He's not bound in any universal sense. And we don't have the power to universally bind Satan. Okay, Diana, back to your friend who every day prays for Satan to be bound. Let me say this. We can and we should pray for Satan's influence and his power to be defeated in particular situations. As we wage warfare in the power and the authority of Jesus, not in ourselves. But we have to understand that this is a praying against Satan's strategies in particular situations, not in just some general sense, Lord, I pray that you would bind Satan and not allow him to do anything else ever again. No, it's more specific situations led by the Holy Spirit, battling in spiritual warfare, where we stand on our delegated authority as believers and say, Lord, would you restrain Satan's work so that people can see and the Holy Spirit's work would go to maximum influence. Well, that's about it for that. Uh, Long answer to a great question. Diana, thank you for the question. And now, uh, if it's okay with everybody, I'm going to move on to the questions from the live chat. Here's how it works. You guys submit your questions in the live chat. Our moderator forwards them to me. He's looking for the questions, number one, that might relate to our lead question. And number two, he's looking for questions that might have the broadest appeal to everybody. All right, let's go now. Uh, Here's the questions coming in from you on the live chat. Sue asks this question. Hi, Pastor David. When someone says that they made a deal with God and their request came true, they now think that's how we believe God is real. If he hadn't, God is not real. How do we respond? Thank you, Sue. Sue 
let me just say this. God does not authorize us to make our own deal with him. God has made a deal with humanity through the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he offers humanity the deal of the new covenant. The new covenant is God's deal for humanity. He says, look, I offer you the new covenant. It will involve, and this is from Old Testament passages having to do with the new covenant. I will completely forgive you of your sins. I will cleanse you of your sins. I'll give you a new heart, a heart made of flesh instead of a heart of stone. I will write my law upon your heart. I will enter into close and meaningful relationship with you, and I will uh, fill you with my spirit. Those are aspects of the new covenant that are described very clearly in the Old Testament. God says, if you will repent and believe, believe what? Well, that means to put your trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus did to rescue us, especially what Jesus did at the cross as being a substitute for our sins and in his resurrection, triumphing over sin and death. That's the deal God offers to humanity. Repent, believe, and receive the benefits of the new covenant. Somebody who thinks that they can stand by and make their own deal with God, they have no authority to do so. Now, Sue, let me say something that I don't mean to contradict at all, but let me just add something to that. I would put it like this. God is under no obligation to answer that person's desire or request. But you know what? Sometimes unbelievers pray crazy prayers that they have no business praying and God in his mercy answers them. Just understand that. So if somebody says, well, hey, uh, I prayed to God and said, Lord, I'm making this deal with you and you'll do this, I'll believe you. And God answered. And and, uh, listen, that's up to God to do. But if we want to talk about what we can confidently believe and receive from the Lord, That's not it. The deal God makes with humanity is in the new covenant. We can repent and believe. We can accept it and reject it. But, but, uh, God is not obligated to honor any kind of deal that we say we're going to make with him. Though, for his own purposes and his own glory, sometimes God is very merciful to people. Listen, God has every right to say... (laughs) You want to make a deal with me? I made a deal with you in the new covenant. Go find your own deal. I'll just destroy you. I mean, God has the right to do that. It's a very arrogant thing for humanity to come to God and say, well, I'm going to make my own deal with God. But again, God is so long-suffering, so rich in mercy, that often he's under no obligation to, but sometimes he does. Often he accommodates people who say, I'm making my own deal with God. And it's up to them if they're going to use that for God's glory or otherwise. Okay, next question comes from Ryan, who asks, why did God command Hosea to marry a prostitute and have children with her, knowing she would be unfaithful due to her profession? Did God use this as an allegory? It seems like sin. Okay, Ryan, uh, yes, God very specifically used it as an allegory in Hosea's life. And this would never be a 
course of action that we would recommend to somebody. Uh, hey, look, it's in the Bible. Hosea married a prostitute. You should too. No, we would never recommend that. But we may recognize that the Bible doesn't say, again, I'm speaking off the top of my head. If somebody knows better than me, they can inform me on this. But to my knowledge, the Bible doesn't say that it is a sin to marry a prostitute. I would say, if anything, it might be a sin against wisdom, especially a prostitute who might be prone to return to her profession of prostitution as Hosea's wife, Gomer, did. So, we're not trying to say that it's a sin, but it may be a sin against wisdom. But Ryan, you're exactly right. God allowed, God even directed Hosea to do this, to be a powerful prophetic uh, illustration. And the pain that Hosea obviously lived with in this situation was a example, was an emblem was a representation of God's own pain and difficulty in dealing with this, uh, with dealing with Israel, who was acting, spiritually speaking, like a prostitute in their relationship with Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Hope that's helpful for you there, Ryan. Um, let me hit this questions or these questions about the lead topic. Stephen asks, what about binding demons in Jesus' name? Okay, well, again, Stephen, I, I think that the believer has directed, pointed ability to do that. But, but we don't have the ability to universally bind demons. I, I mean, again, then why not just say, uh, Lord, I bind every demon from my life for the rest of my life. And then I can never be tempted or assaulted or deceived or attempted to be deceived by a demon. But again, we don't have that kind of authority. <laughs> but I believe that in a specific situation of spiritual warfare, you know, look, a lot of parents really begin to encounter some spiritual warfare as they raise their children, their grandchildren, and they pray, Lord, whatever strategies that Satan and his agents may have against my child against my grandchild. Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus, those strategies would be defeated and Satan would be bound. And again, I think that there's a way to pray that that understands how these things work in the realm of the spirit. And then there's a way that just kind of uh, almost thinks that we as believers have magical power as if we could just uh, throw out some pixie dust. And listen, let me be honest with you. For some people, for some Christians, or at least claimed Christians, the name of Jesus is like magic dust that they throw out. Well, if I just say the name of Jesus, then I get whatever I want. Well, listen, friends, if you were to say, I want Satan and all of his demonic spirits bound from the world in Jesus' name, that, that's not going to happen. Again, because God has not directed it to happen. In this period of time, God has ordained that the devil would walk about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Ultimately, that's going to serve God's purpose. No doubt about that. But now is a season when God has ordained that Satan would be active on the earth. Later on, Satan will be bound. The book of Revelation is very clear from that. Not only will he be bound, but he will be unable to impact uh, humanity in the slightest way because he will be bound and imprisoned 
Revelation chapter 20 talks about that very eloquently. Okay, next question comes from Dan. How can the church help build the desire for the word like Peter said a believer should have? It seems like many are just getting the fire insurance and moving on. Well, Dan, let, let me be straightforward with you. First of all, the church builds the desire for the word by preaching and teaching God's word. It's a funny thing. When people are starved for God's word, many of them, I'm not going to say all because look, people are different. But when people are starved for God's word, they will sometimes lose their appetite for it. But when they receive it, when they receive good preaching and teaching from God's word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, Old Testament as well as New Testament. Friends, I'm a little wary of ministries that only teach the New Testament and virtually ignore verse by verse exposition of the Old Testament. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't know why some ministries ignore, virtually speaking, the Old Testament and refuse to do careful, quality, verse-by-verse exposition through the Old Testament. But this is what we need. We need the whole Bible for a whole Christian life. And the more we get of that, the more we will hunger for it. Now, you also mentioned here, Dan, about the whole idea that many people are just getting fire insurance. And this, what I want you to understand, Dan, is that we need to realize, and I think we realize it more and more. I'm not saying it's more true. I'm just saying it's more understood in our day. That there's a lot of people who are believers in name only. They call themselves Christians. Uh, they may attend church either every once in a while or regularly, but they're not real believers. They don't live their life for Jesus Christ in any meaningful way. They don't do what the word believe in the language of the New Testament means. It means to trust in, rely on, and cling to. Oh, if you ask them, do you believe Jesus lived and taught and died and rose again? Yeah, I believe all that. But do they trust in it? Do they rely on it? Do they cling to it? Not in any meaningful way. And Dan, teaching the Bible drives away some nominal believers. Not all, but some. And if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. So I hope that's helpful for you, Dan. Thank you for that question. Um, uh, T. Hale asks, do we bind Satan in Jesus' name or ask God or Jesus to bind Satan? Okay, T., uh, that's a good question. Listen, I want you to know that I think it's the heart that's much more meaningful in this than the formulation of words. Let's always remember that we're not casting spells. (laughs) We're not casting spells where the formulation of the words is all essential. And if you don't get the formulation of the words just right, it's really much more of a matter of where's the heart. In other words, what are you trusting in? I could say all the right words, but if I'm trusting in myself and in my power, it's no good before God. And I could say words that aren't the best way to phrase it, 
But if I'm truly putting my trust in Jesus Christ and his authority and his work, well, then God can honor that and often does. So, um, do we bind Satan in Jesus' name or ask that God or Jesus would bind Satan? T. Hale, I would say either one can be fine as long as it's understood that we don't do it in our own authority but we do it only in any delegated authority. Listen, I don't want anybody to think for a moment that the believer has no authority. The believer has great authority, but all of that authority is in Jesus Christ. It's not in the believer themselves. It's delegated authority from Jesus Christ. And if saying in Jesus' name helps that person to remember that, then that's good. Don't ever forget in the book of Jude that when Michael, the archangel, rebuked Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He did it in the name of the Lord, in Yahweh, and Jesus is Yahweh. So, um, Hale, I I would just simply say that it's more the heart in this situation than the specific words that are important. Thank you for that, Hale. Um, Let me get on to the next question here from KFlex who asks, can spiritual uncleanliness be a generational curse? Okay, K-Flex, your question is more complicated, I would say, than it immediately seems. But let me explain a few things. Number one, There is a sense, a generational curse on all of humanity. Every one of us inherits a sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. That's what it means in Romans 5 and 6 that we are born in Adam, that we're represented by Adam. So, in a sense, every person who's ever been born, with the exception of the virgin-born Jesus Christ, has inherited spiritual uncleanliness. But the idea of a generational curse, that someone is bound by a particular curse, we have to be very careful with that idea. Now, I I don't doubt at all, and I think you find a scripture pattern of this, I don't doubt at all that the sins of the fathers can be visited upon their descendants. Uh, that because of the environment, because of the example, because of the, the culture around them, oftentimes uh, granddad was a drunkard, daddy was a drunkard, the sons are drunkards. It can just happen that way. A- again, I-, I don't think you need any particular generational curse, though it certainly functions as a generational curse in that matter. But I don't believe that people are born cursed in this way beyond the general curse that we receive from Adam himself. And spiritual uncleanness, this idea is a largely in the Bible, a ceremonial idea in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. Spiritual uncleanness has to do more with 
the sins that a person practices in a New Testament contest. When the Bible says to put away all uncleanness, it's talking about specific sins. It's not talking about the ritual things under the Old Covenant that would make someone unclean. So, if you're talking about the sins of the fathers being passed on to generations behind them, that happens, but I don't think it's by any sort of magical curse. I think it happens through example and environment. Uh, as far as ritual uncleanness, we're not under that. So, I hope that helps you there, K-Flex. Next question comes from uh, Jay Fryer, who asks, Hiya, Pastor David. What does Jesus mean by resist not evil in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39? Does this extend to providing safety for your family like it's mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, or protecting others in danger? Well, no, Jay, I, I would say that it does not extend to that. I believe that the Bible consistently, including Jesus, gives people the right to defend themselves and to defend them fam their families from physical violence. Um, in context, in the Sermon on the Mount, and you're quoting there the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus talks about the insult and the uh, evil received by his people from those who would resist or, or oppose his people, he wasn't talking about in the context of uh, physical violence. Even when he said that someone would strike you on your cheek, that was understood in that day as being an insult. I, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Sometimes we see it in cartoons where, you know, uh, somebody takes a glove off their hand and sort of slaps a person in the face with hand. It's not really meant to be a physical uh, assault. More so the idea is to insult a person. Well, th that's the same connotation behind what Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, if somebody hits you with a baseball bat, let them keep hitting you uh, because that'll bring me glory. No, the Bible itself promotes the idea that people can and should defend themselves from physical violence and they should defend their families. I want you to think about something. Listen, I don't have chapter and verse. You could look it up for yourself in a concordance. Just search for the uh, word sword in the Gospels. The disciples of Jesus, at least some of the time, carried a sword with them for self-defense. Now, friends, listen. We would say all day long, the sword was never to be the method by which the gospel was advanced. The sword was not to be the way that the church increased its influence. God forbid. But Jesus made reference and his disciples made reference in the gospels to them being in possession of a sword. And it seems that Peter had a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. Friends, uh, this was for self-defense. This would be like today, somebody being armed. There were a lot of bandits. There were a lot of bad people. And Jesus countenanced his disciples properly defending themselves, even though Jesus obviously could have used supernatural means to defend themselves. Now, this idea, Jay Fryer, that you bring up, resist not evil extending towards physical violence that somebody might bring against us or against our families, that's the, the connotation given to it by pacifists. And listen, I, I'll tell you, I don't agree with pacifism. 
but I understand where they make their arguments. I understand why they do what they want to do. And I, I would strongly disagree with them. But listen, that's between them and the Lord. But the Bible does give repeated occasion where it permits self-defense. And this is seen even in the phenomenon among the disciples in Jesus, where they carried a sword for their defense. Okay, let me go on to the next question uh, from Thomas. Good morning, Pastor David. Can you comment on a saying that is used quite frequently among Christians, God helps those who help themselves? I understand it's not literally in the Bible, but is it figuratively scriptural? Kind of funny you mentioned that. Let me look on the table behind me. Uh, I don't see it behind me. I see a version of it in another place over there in my library. Uh, I have this great anthology that was put out of um, Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a very important person in the uh, beginnings of the United States of America in colonial times, around the time of the American Revolution. And uh, Benjamin Franklin was never a president, never a governor, but he was just a very influential man. And he was a publisher. And one of the things he published was something called Poor Richard's Almanac. And as far as I know, that proverb, God helps those who help themselves, came from Poor Richard's Almanac, something pu published by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, maybe that wasn't the origin, but at least that's one story that goes around. Thomas, God helps those who help themselves is true in a limited sphere. And here's the sphere that it's limited in. It's limited in the sphere of simply being able to say that, um, hey, don't be completely inactive. If you want God to move, get working yourself. If you want God to work, get working yourself. You, you can imagine somebody praying, oh, Lord, help me with my work. I just need your help with this work. I need the desire to work. I need your help to work. work. God would just say, well, why don't you get working and I'll help you. Help yourself and my help will be with you. There is a limited area in which that proverb is true. But let me tell you very strongly, Thomas, where it is not true. It is not true as a principle of the kingdom of God. Where we are brought into right relationship. This is not the way it is. We are not brought into right relationship with God because we've tried our best. And then God says, oh, you've tried your best. Now let me help you take up the rest of the slack. No, we are brought into right relationship with God completely by the work of Jesus, not by anything we do, not anything we've done in the past, not anything we're doing right now, not anything we promise to do in the future. That's how we are brought into right relationship with God, not by helping ourselves and then God, you know, uh, helping us with the part we can't do. No, we are brought into right relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and done in us, and done through us. Now, again, from a very practical way, I would say to the student, 
get to work. God helps those who help themselves. I would say to the person working a job, get to work. God helps those who help themselves. But I would get to the person, I would say to the person who understands their need to be made right with God and to walk in right relationship with God, give off trying to save yourself. Give off trying to help yourself look fully and completely to what God gives you in Jesus Christ for your help. So Thomas, as a proverb, whether Benjamin Franklin compiled it in Poor Richard's Almanac or not, as a proverb, uh, it's true in a limited sphere, but not as a kingdom of God principle. Hope that helps you there, Thomas. Next question comes from Ayo, who asks, I keep asking myself, why do I need to accept Jesus? Because in my life, experience the same things that people who believe experience, good and bad. So why do I need religion? Ayo, great question. Thank you for your question. Let me tell you why you need religion. Let me tell you why you need Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the son of God and he's God the son. And Jesus said that he was the only way for people to become into right relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And listen, I'll I'll be very honest with you. It wouldn't matter if Jesus would make your life better or if Jesus would make your life worse only way for you to come in right relationship with God is through who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for you, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection. If you're looking at purely on terms of, well, what benefits me? I'll I'll be honest with you. If you become a Christian, if you put your faith, if you trust in rely on and cling to Jesus Christ in all of who he is and all of what he did, according to the Bible, if you, as I said before, if you bring the real you to the real Jesus, in some ways your life will get better and in some ways it'll probably get worse. That's how it is. So you need to understand that. You need to sober-mindedly decide if you're going to accept or reject Jesus Christ. But I I just want to say to you very plainly and directly, not only does life and happiness in this life depend on this, but so does it for eternity. You should do it because it's the right thing to do and because Jesus Christ is who he said he was, and he proved it through his resurrection. That's why you should do it, Io. Thank you for the question. Okay, next question. <sighs> Lightning round. Time for a drink of water. Go fast. Wow. Friends, my moderators tell me to go fast, so I'm going to try to go fast very best I can here. Okay, ready? Are we ready? Here we go. David asks, my question is, did the Bible talk about the earth being flat? No, the Bible speaks in terms of the Lord sitting over the circle of the earth. That's in Isaiah chapter 40, maybe verse 3, but Isaiah chapter 40 to be sure. So God sits on the circle of the earth, David, 
And uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about the earth being flat. It does speak sometimes in colloquial language about the corners of the earth, but that isn't an indication that it's flat. If anything, the Bible suggests that the earth is round by saying that the Lord sits on the circle of the earth. Regina asks, why do some people say that they are Israelites today? Well, Regina, there are people who are Israelites today. They are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob genetically, and they are of Israel according to the flesh. And Regina, there's Israel according to the flesh, and then there's Israel according to the spirit. Regina, every person who's a believer of Jesus Christ is Israel, so to speak, according to the spirit. Spiritual Israel is a true concept. The problem isn't when people believe in the concept of spiritual Israel. The problem is when they stop believing in God's concept and God's continuing role for genetic Israel. God has and continues to have a real, genuine place for genetic Israel in his plan. Hope that helps you there, Regina. Lynn asks, uh, I recently joined a new church that offers a verse-by-verse Bible study led by a woman, and it's open to men and women. Is this wrong? Should I leave the church over this? Okay, Lynn, there's a lot about your question that I would want to know more details before I give a better answer about. To be honest, Lynn, I'd rather be in the study and just kind of get a feeling of whether or not I think this is an overstepping of biblical bounds. But let me just say this, Lynn. Um, If there's a better church in your community to go to, then you should go to that. There may not be a better church, but clearly there's some kind of issue with this church, whether it's a small issue or a big issue, you'd have to know more about. But the Bible does say that the role of teaching and preaching authority, leadership in the church, uh, in the pulpit— I would say, uh, as pastors, as elders, as overseers, God's recognized offices over the church, that those offices are to be held by qualified men. Not just any man, but qualified men. I've got extensive uh, discussion of this topic throughout the YouTube channel. Look it up on there. But Lynn, I would just say, if there is a better church to go to in your community, you should go to that better church. Modern Entrepreneurs says, Hi, Pastor, do you have any advice or experiences share in regard to witnessing to a Mormon? Thank you. Um, Modern Entrepreneurs, let me tell you about my own experience in speaking to Mormons about Christianity, is that I have found Mormons to be uh, almost, uh, I'd just say, remarkably uninterested in theology, in doctrine. The Mormons that I've had a chance to talk to, and I haven't spoken to that many, but the handful I've had great discussions with over the years, they don't really care about theology. You try to show them that they're wrong according to the Bible, according to theology, they just haven't cared very much. They're not in Mormonism for the theology. They're in it for the morals. They're in it for the community. They're in it for the, you know, good, strong, whatever it is. And I'm sure that that's decreasing these days as the Mormon church becomes more and more progressive and less and less biblical, even in its morality, uh, it's long been unbiblical in its theology, but now it's becoming less and less biblical in its morality. Uh, so I, I've just found that I, I would go after more the idea of community, but I, I've just found that Mormons, many of them are just not that interested. When you talk about Mormon theology, it's ridiculous. 
It does not present the God of the Bible. That's all there is to it. And that's what I'd emphasize. That's what I would stress. Banjo says, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 7, it seems like God the Father has a physical right hand. I thought that the Father is more spiritual in nature and was curious your thoughts on this. Greetings from Garner, North Carolina. Well, Banjo, hello to you in North Carolina. Let me just say, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Um, first of all, you, you need to allow for the possibility of what we would just simply call the anthropomorphism. The, uh, the, the use or the speaking of God in human terms, uh, because that's the nearest analogy we can make. Look, let's just recognize that there is a gulf. <laughs> There's a grand canyon between the human and the divine. And, and uh, we talk about things in the world of divinity uh, knowing that we aren't talking about them precisely. We're not talking about them in any exact manner. We're doing the best we can. And so, Banjo, I, I would not get hung up on that. And I would just see that as much as anything, it's an anthropomorphism, uh, just describing things the best way they could be described. That's how I would see it. Uh, Ryan asks this question. Could you provide a modern example for Romans chapter 8, verse 9? Have a blessed day and weekend. Um, Romans 8, 9. But beware lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Okay, well, I'll give you, Ryan, a very common modern day example for 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 would be uh, the drinking of alcohol. Now, let, let me just get very economical with my words here. After all, this is the lightning round. I'm trying to respect our moderator out there. But I would say this, the Bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol for believers. I believe that the Bible does discourage, it doesn't prohibit, but it discourages the consumption of alcohol for leaders in the church. Now, let me just speak about the, while the Bible for believers, I'm not talking about leaders here, but just believers, while it does not prohibit the consumption of alcohol, it does prohibit and condemn drunkenness. So, if a person can drink without becoming drunk, if they can uh, be conspicuous in their moderation, well, then fine. Then, then the Bible, I think, gives them the liberty. But is that a liberty everybody should use? Not at all. There are people who know I will be bound by alcohol if I drink even a bit, or at least the danger of it happening, maybe it may not happen every time, but the danger of it happening is so significantly, and, and the bad results of it happening are so great that I don't have the liberty to drink alcohol, they would say. Well, if I believe that I had the liberty to drink alcohol, and I did it before a believer who knew that they did not have the liberty to drink alcohol, that could be a very bad combination for that person. So, uh, I think the consumption of alcohol could be a perfect example of that. It's a liberty that could be very easily a stumbling block to those who are weak. Uh, these just have to do with areas in the Christian life where uh, God may legitimately allow it for one believer, but may prohibit it for another believer. And God has the freedom to do that. But we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in such things. 
Okay, let me continue on. Next question from Tony. I was hoping you could clarify for me as how many prophecies are in the Bible, and more importantly, how many of them have come true. Tony, I can't give you that figure. I hear different figures. Sometimes I hear the thing of 300 messianic prophecies. This, Tony, your best resource is to just Google it. I'm sure people have done exhaustive research on that, but really, you just need to be guided to Google. Just Google how many prophecies are there in the Bible. Uh, Google how many prophecies in the Bible have come true. So uh, that's really the best answer. I don't have that number, that figure for you at hand. Brianna asks, when and how did people in Bible times hear and know about the prophets of the Old Testament? Was it in the law? Was the entire Old Testament given to them? Well, Brianna, it came in stages. Uh, First, the prophets would speak their message by voice, but then it would be recorded either by the prophet themselves or by an associate. And over time, the copies of those uh, words of the prophets would be distributed throughout Israel. Although the first five books of Moses, the law, the Torah, that was gathered and to be read all around Israel throughout their history by the ministry of the Levites. The priests and the Levites had the responsibility to bring the word of God to the people of Israel, and that would have been the first five books, the Torah. And then other books would be added by the guidance of the Holy Spirit over time to that. And uh, you, you, you can't say that they had Bibles as we had Bibles, but there was a fair amount of access to the scriptures that existed in their time through these commands of the teaching priests, the teaching Levites, that's really a wonderful subject to discuss. I don't know if I have a video on that, but man, I should, because that's a subject that fascinates me, the role of the teaching priest and the Levite. Tunnel Banan Chugotre says, hello from France. Well, you must be holiday in France, uh, semester there in France. I hope you're having a nice time. Uh, how can hell be both a place of fire and darkness when the fire would light up in the darkness? Well, Tunal Banan, Shugotre, I would just simply say this, that I don't know if I can answer that question. Maybe God, and, and again, I'm just speaking off the top of my head here. Maybe God has fire in hell that doesn't give light, that only gives darkness. You know, you think that in heaven, the Bible tells us that it needs no sun because uh, the Lord, that the Lamb are the light for the new heavens and the new earth. In hell, it could be just the opposite. That things that we would normally think would have light, don't have light in hell. So I don't know if we get a biblical explanation or description of it, but it's no problem for God to accomplish it. Uh, okay, and the last one is L.A. Temez 1. Could you share top commentaries you use or study tools? Oh boy, um, that's a question that deserves a longer answer, uh, but I've got a lot of favorite commentators. Um, you know, I'm looking over a whole wall full of commentaries here. Look, I, I like to read a lot of Charles Spurgeon. That's evident from my commentary. Uh, in the Old Testament, I like commentators like Derek Kidner. I think he's a tremendous commentator. 
Joyce Baldwin has some great commentaries in the InterVarsity Press series. Uh, I try to read a lot of F.B. Meyer. Um, he's helpful. Adam Clark has a tremendous commentary. John Trapp, he's an old Puritan guy that I really appreciate. Uh, in the New Testament, I really appreciate the work of Leon Morris. He may be one of my favorite commentators. F.F. Bruce, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, throughout the whole Bible, I also appreciate the work of James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert, I find to be a careful commentator. Uh, Romans, verse by verse, by William Newell, I think is a fine commentary. He also has a work on Hebrews and has a work on uh, Revelation as well. Those are some just quick ones off the top of my head. Maybe for a future program, we'll make that a lead question, and I'll actually show you some of the commentaries that I'm interested in uh, and why I find them helpful. That might be a good lead question to do. Moderator, think about that, and maybe we'll get to that. But uh, that's the last question of our lightning round, and um, I think we're going to end it with that. So again, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to have you. I'm so glad that you could join us. And God willing, and if we live, I'll be with you next Thursday, starting at 12 noon Pacific time again. God bless you. And uh, again, thanks for coming. Hope to see you next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.